Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 19 of the I Gotta Ask podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Oliveira. As always, returning listeners, thank you so much for tuning in again. I truly couldn't possibly appreciate you and all of your support any more than I do, so thank you all so much for continuing to be with me as I release these episodes. Uh, for any new listeners, the only label I stick on this thing is that it's a show where I talk to cool people that do cool things. Um, I mostly speak with musicians, but I've also had people on the podcast who uh, have other interesting careers or projects on the go. And uh, there are some of those coming up in the near future. Uh, so if this is your first time here, thank you for joining uh, in. And uh, if you like what you hear, please come back in the coming weeks and months, uh, years maybe. I don't know. Uh, I have no idea how long I'll be able to keep this thing running. Um, but uh, I know I like doing it. And I hope uh, everyone that listens enjoys the show and keeps coming back for more. Uh, today's guest is another amazing musician. Speaking of musicians, uh, it was an honor to speak to this gentleman because he has been a part of of a couple of bands that I really enjoy. Uh, his name is Mike Davenport, and Mike created and played bass most recently in the great band Versus the World, uh, but he's also played bass in one of my all-time favorite punk bands, uh, the Ataris. Uh, Mike couldn't have been more of an amazing guest, and it was an absolute pleasure talking with him and getting to know him. Uh, Mike has uh, had some recent legal troubles, which we discussed in the episode, but I must say, uh, please don't believe everything you read on the internet, folks. Um, heading into the episode, and based on what I had read and the research I had done, I had no idea what to expect, but uh, about one minute in, I could just immediately tell that Mike is a super guy, and we got along amazingly well, and I feel like I made a new friend very quickly. Um, so other than Mike's recent uh, problems with the law, we spoke about his time uh, both with the Ataris and Versus the World, where Mike grew up, and what the scene was like there, and how he got into punk to begin with, uh, his early career as a bassist, and what his early bands were like, how Mike made the most of his time away, and how he's been writing short stories and novels recently, and a whole bunch more. Mike is full of amazing stories, and I hope to have him back someday to tell me more of them. So, Mike, if you're hearing this, again, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me. It was an absolute honor and a pleasure, and we have to do it again, my friend. So that about does it for the intro, but uh, I should let you guys know that recording these things via Zoom is sometimes a crazy pain in the butt, and this was uh, one of those times. Uh, Mike and I were plagued with connection issues and had to actually end and restart the call a few times. So if you hear some weird edits, it's because I had to do the best I could to eliminate some, uh, some weird audio. Uh, before we get into the episode, I'm going to play a couple of tracks from the bands I mentioned uh, that Mike has been a part of. We discussed the Atari's album Blue Skies Broken Hearts Next 12 Exits in the episode, which uh, has uh, one of my all-time favorite Atari songs on it called San Dimas High School Football Rules. So I'm going to play that. Uh, but before that song, I'm going to play the title track off the Versus the World album, Homesick, Roadsick. I love that album, and the title track is just an absolute banger. Uh, following those tracks, I'll roll the podcast intro music and let you guys jump into the conversation. Hope you all enjoyed the episode, and please help me out by subscribing wherever you listen, uh, rate the show wherever you listen, share it around with your friends, and uh, follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram by simply searching for at I Gotta Ask Podcast. And if you'd like, you can also follow my personal Instagram account, which is Surly, which is O-L underscore S-U-R-L-Y. That's it, guys. Take care, and please enjoy my talk with Mike Davenport. Yeah, boy, let's do this. Hit it! Oh! 
This is Mike Davenport from Versus the World and the Ataris, and you're listening to the I Gotta Ask podcast. I, li- I like the I like the bass on the back wall there. That's new. Yeah, that's uh, Maui blue. Is that is that the color of Tide that one? Pool. Or is- Tide pool. Oh, yeah. cool. I had a Maui, Maui blue a little lighter than that. You know what? Lighter. I think that's what Neil Wayne from the Bomb Pops has. Yeah, and, that's, and that's why I bought that bass, because it was similar in color to his. Right? Yeah, I, I had a Maui blue. Uh, uh, my singer in Versus the World, Donald, bought for me. Yep. Um, him and my wife got together. It was uh, early oh, wow. 70s, 72, Maui oh, wow. blue bass. So. Yeah, because that was yeah. like kind of like a custom color, right? It wasn't really. It was. Yeah. There was only a, there was only a few hundred made. Yeah, yeah, and I th- I'm I'm certain that's what Neil has too, because they just did their live stream last week, and I I tuned in, and I they had a little live chat going on in the side, and I and I just asked him like, what what is that color that base? And a couple people chimed in, and uh, and then I think what he actually said was that it was Maui blue, and that it was a yeah. it was very short small run, right? Yeah, so, small run. Yeah, yeah. Worth, worth a lot. Five five Gs for oh, that yeah. base. Oh yeah, so, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's a beautiful gift they gave you. I mean, <laughs> you yeah, can't go yeah. wrong with that. It was, a, it was a nice gift. Yeah, absolutely. It was the only only time somebody ever bought me a guitar. So, yeah, I've uh, never been uh, bought a guitar either. Except, yeah, I mean, I've, other than my parents, right? But Mike Herrera gave me uh, my first Stingray. Wow. So yeah, I got to say that that was uh, as. Beautiful of a gift as them buying me the Maui Blue when Mike Carrera giving me a bass. That's so, incredible that Mike Carrera yeah. gave you a bass, too. That's a cool story. Yeah. Well, it's because I was uh, playing, uh, it was in the very early days of Tari's MXPX, and we were touring. Um, this is in the mid uh, 90s, and I was playing a PV. And my career was like sponsored by uh, by Ernie Ball. Yeah, yeah. And and he's like, you can't play that bass anymore, dude. <laughs> he's like, I have three, so here you go. So he gave me one, and uh, I still see sometimes a lot of pictures of me playing that bass, which I'm like, oh, my career gave me that bass. I don't have it anymore, but that's incredible. I went Fender. Fender started sponsoring us yeah, in, yeah. The, in the big days of the Ataris. So I got rid of the Stingray. I wish I still had it, but I don't. They're great basses. They sound great. But for me, like, and I'm primarily a guitar player, right? I don't play a lot of bass. Right. Um, I just bought it recently because I've been buying some recording equipment for the podcast. And then I've been sort of doing some home recording of my own, trying to get some ideas and demos down. And so I needed a bass. And so I bought like a short scale Squire. Um, yeah, yeah. It was okay, but. I thought the short scale would be nice because I'm a guitar player, right? So I thought oh, I'll be used to the short scale. And then I quickly yeah. realized I need a full no. scale. Sh- short scale basses are terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, they're not the best. 
And the Stingray, I loved everything about it, except um, I'm not an active pickup guy. That's I don't the like thing. active. I don't yeah. like active pickups, so I got, I, that's exactly why I stopped playing it. Yeah, for me, it's like Fender is the way to go for basses. Yeah, I'm a Fender jazz guy. That's uh, oh, you're a jazz a guy. Lo- yeah, Fender jazz bass. The So Long Astoria and the last three verses of the world records, I've played the same bass, uh, Fender jazz bass. It's a it's a '62 reissue. It was put out in the '90s. But it's a reissue of the 1962 series, and it just sounds. Every time we go to the studio, we mess with all kinds of different basses and amps, and there's nothing that sounds better than that bass. So, nice, yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, why don't we get rolling then? I mean, we're let's go. We're, we're basically we're doing up. it. We're doing we're rolling it. Rolling already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, why don't you? Uh, why don't you, I mean, if if the listeners are here, they're not here for me. They're here for you because <laughs> nobody's tuning in to hear me talk. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell the folks who you are for the ones that don't know. Um, my, my name is Mike Davenport. Uh, I'm a bass player and I play, uh, have played and play in two bands. One is the Ataris and the other one is Versus the World. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. Um, thanks for being on, by the way. I mean, that's a huge, uh, you know, it's a huge honor for me to be talking to you. I, anytime I reach out to anyone, and I've said this on multiple podcasts because I still can't believe that anyone uh, that doesn't know me wants to talk to me on this thing and be on mic. And it's, it's, it's always amazing when someone like some bands like that, I mean, I'm a newer versus the world fan, but I'm an old school Atari's fan. I mean, I've been listening cool. to Atari's forever. Right. Cool. Um, and I think I started listening around the time you joined the band, because if I'm not mistaken, you came on board around blue skies, right? That, that record. Yeah. I mean, uh, I actually did all the touring for anywhere, but here, um, uh, anywhere, but here isn't a band. Uh, people don't know this, but anywhere, but here, the first Atari's record is Chris and a guy from Jason from Indiana, um, that recorded the record. Ah. Then Chris ended up in Santa Barbara, um, because the original drummer they gave him was Derek Ford from Lagwagon. Um, Derek lived in Santa Barbara, was a good friend of mine. So when Chris came to Santa Barbara, he didn't have a band, so to say it was sort of Chris, doing the first record uh, with Derek Plord playing drums. And so he came to Santa Barbara and had to put together a band, and basically Chris and I put that band together. Nice. So I've been in the band really since the beginning of the California, since Chris moved to Indiana to California, um, and then that was in late 1996. And uh, um, we did all the touring for Anywhere But Here, and during that time we made Blue Skies. Cool, cool. Yeah, so you definitely, well, you played on Blue Skies, obviously, but it sounds like you, you must have recorded that record with that band. Yes, Blue yeah. Skies, and um, Look Forward to Failure, our yep. Fat Records EP, uh, and It's Forever, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Awesome. That's awesome. I I mean, I can't tell you how many times I probably heard um, uh, San Dimas High School Football Rules. That was my favorite track off that one. And I probably yeah. spun that a few hundred times, like, when the year the record came out. <laughs> I probably listened to it every day at least once, you know? That song changed our life. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, it, it went from, we were out on tour and we were doing those punk rock in the van tours back then. And San Dimas came out on Life in the Fat Lane. And when that hit on Life in the Fat Lane, it went from like 10 to 20 people coming to our shows to like hundreds of people. So <laughs> that, song, that song made us exactly who we are, to be honest with and, you. And I am 100% sure that's how I found out about the Ataris was from that, yeah. from that uh, compilation because exactly. exactly. Because that's all I bought. You know what I mean? Like I was, I'm not gonna say I was broke, but I mean, I was on a, on a kid's uh, allowance basically. Right. I didn't have a job at that time. 
I mean, we all we all bought those. How yeah. did we all get into propaganda yeah. or Lagwagon Lagway, or No Use for a Name or Good Riddance? Those all came from those fat compilations. Um, the first one was Fat Music for Fat People. Yeah. And when that when that came out, it was like three bucks. Yeah. And everyone's like, <laughs> for three bucks, you got like every great band in yeah. the world. Yeah. And how how can you go wrong? Yeah. How could so. you go wrong? Right. It's like it, and it's like I've told other people on the podcast before. It is amazing how many bands you are exposed to buying one record. Right. Exactly. Like what a smart idea. And I'm sure like if, I mean, Fat Records wasn't the first one to have a compilation. But at the same time, I think they were the ones that that I think were the, the first popular ones in like with my circle of friends. Right. Well, I can tell you that all the other punk labels soon followed suit. Very Absolutely. Epi- yeah. Epitaph did the punk Ramas, Yeah. Uh, and even our label, Kung Fu, started yeah. doing their version. Yeah. So it, yeah. it, they were just popping out. And Hopeless uh, did them and all those other, you know, Nitro, Nitro. Yeah. Those. You yeah, know? for sure. I had all those. They were they were so cheap and they were great. You know what I mean? I loved yeah. them. I just loved yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Um, where did where are you from then? Are you from California originally? So, I am. I'm the uh, even though the bands, uh, both bands, we consider to be from Santa Barbara. Um, I'm the one that was from closest to Santa Barbara. I grew up in Santa Barbara County, northern Santa Barbara County, in a place we call Orcutt, O R C U T T, Orcutt, California. And Orcutt was cool. It's a suburb of Santa Maria. And um, it was a great place to grow up. It's Southern California. Um, it's the Central Coast, we call it. So it's pretty much halfway in between uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Nice, nice. So, it was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm, I've, you know, I, again, I, I, I repeat myself a lot on this podcast, but I love anything California. I always have, you know, growing up, it's like, I, I you know, I've joked with my wife uh, that I, I would love to live there, you know, someday and, and all our yeah. families here and stuff. But I think there might be a time in our lives where we are going to migrate that way because I just, everything about it, like just the, the punk community there is amazing. You know what I mean? You, you live in a great place. It's I do. Just, it's just too cold. Yeah. That's it's way all. too it's cold, too, man. Too, way too cold. Yeah. But other than that, other than that, I think that in up in the Toronto area, um, Ontario, I think the punk scene's great. I think, I think Toronto is an amazing city. Yeah. I think the bands are good. I just think that it's too cold. That's it really awesome. is. And I yeah. hate winters. And that's exactly why California or, or even Florida, like I lived in Florida for a short stint when I was a kid, like when I was yeah. around like seven or eight, I lived there for like six months with my, with my folks. My dad went there to work and, um, like waking up in December and jumping in the pool. I mean, come on, man. You know what I mean? You wake up in December here and it's like, you need a, a sweater just to get out of bed. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. It's, it's awful. I'm not a winter guy, so that's why California is just so appealing to me. You know, it just looks, whenever somebody posts something, it's like, fuck, it looks beautiful, right? It's like, I want to be yeah. there. What was the uh, what was the punk scene like where you were around? It was awesome. So I'm a little older. I'm, uh, I, I graduated high school in 1986. I'm 52 right now. Mm-hmm. So basically, uh, I got to go to high school in that uh, early 80s, you know, uh, Southern California scene. We were very into the Mystic Records stuff, which was RKL, Rat Pack, uh, Ill Repute, Aggression. And then from that, we drifted down south, of course, uh, to the Black Flag, um, uh, for me, Descendants, of oh, course, yeah. the, pop, the pop punk, Social Distortion, when they were pop punk, was Mommy's Little Monsters, one of my favorite albums of all time. Nice. And so I, I got into pop punk early. Uh, adolescence is a huge, huge influence of mine, too. So Descendants, nice. Adolescence, early Social D. So And those are the shows we started going to. We started seeking out those shows and, and driving down south to L.A. and and uh, and seeing those bands play live. That's so, awesome. It was cool. So we had a, we, we had we grew up uh, in a very skateboarding um, 
type of uh, our, our suburb, Orchid, was we had a little gang called the Orchid Skate Thrashers. Nice. And we we all we would all band up together and drive in these caravans to these punk shows uh, from Santa Barbara, Oxnard um, uh, to L.A. to go see all those bands play that I just mentioned. That's wicked, man. So yeah, you had a little crew cool. to travel with you at all the shows. We did, yeah. We had you. You had to back then because it was a very, uh, it was a very like gang oriented scene, and we were by no means competitive with those gangs. Yeah. But what those gangs did was, if you went with a bunch of guys, you at least felt protected, like you yeah. weren't going to get beat. Yeah, you know? right. So, but yeah, the, the back then we'd go see uh, like suicidal tendencies and those bands, and they would bring all their uh, the gang of suicidals would go up against the skinheads, and it was it was pretty insane. Jesus. So, yeah, that sounds aggressive for lack was, of a better it, it term. Was, there's a lot of books that are coming out that you can read about the scene back in those days that are, are you know, a great one that talks about it is, is um, uh, Anthony Kiedis's book talks about it a lot. If you read that and the flea book that just came out and those guys were in that early punk scene too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to dig a little bit more in that. That's one thing. I mean, I always knew I liked punk when I was a kid, like, I just didn't know what punk was, you know what I mean? Like, right. So now in my older years, I'm going back and looking looking at stuff that is older, right? Like, like the stuff that predates like the Ramones and the sex pistols and stuff like that. Um, and just starting to dive into it. And then I recently, uh, watched, uh, punk's not dead, that documentary, which is a number of years old now already, but it talks a little bit about that older scene. Right. I'm in, I'm in that documentary. I saw you. Yeah. I I, I was hoping you'd be in it a little longer actually. Yeah. You know, the Ataris were at the end of that whole, whole scene. So, uh, so I feel honored to just be in it at all. I'm I'm in that documentary and I'm in it with a lot of my heroes. So just the fact that I get to say that and it was cool. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. It's amazing. So were you always, uh, once you, once you found punk and music, did you start playing bass right away or were you? I did. I'm always a bass player. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I was just talking to um, my best friend in the world's my singer in versus the world, Donald, uh, Spence and yeah. Donald and I was just talking about that. And my, I hate when people say that bass players are failed guitar players. He doesn't think <laughs> that either. I just, I just tell them we're monsters who love four strings. Yeah. So, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, w- I was always a bass player. And the reason why I became, I started playing, I was always interested in music, but I started playing um, uh, drums as a, like five or six or something. Oh, wow. Gu- guitar at nine. And then about 12 years old, I noticed that everybody else had drums and guitars. Yeah. So I, I was like the guy that was like the 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 guy that business guy that wanted to form a band. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, so I can get you to play guitar, you to play drums. So I'm going to get a bass and then we can at least have a band. Right. That, that's, how, that's how it started. And I just stuck with it from there. Yeah. You always need that guy that puts everyone together, right? Like everyone exactly. knows an instrument. You just got to find the right guys. Okay, well, I, I think I heard that Johnny down the street's playing bass, but I, I don't know. Let's go find him. And bass is always the hardest guy to find, I feel like. Yeah, everybody yeah, played yeah. drums and guitar, you know? Everybody. So that's exactly <laughs> why I got a bass. That's exactly why. Nice. Yeah, I've been t- I sort of was messaging with back and forth with Donald. You mentioned Don Spence there uh, yeah. about being on. It kind of fell off the rails. He's I know he's super busy like versus the world's obviously recording right now. That's and, right. Uh, I think he just moved if I if I saw his Instagram he, correctly. He did. I, I was actually that's why I moved to North Hollywood. I was living with Donald and oh, okay. he's moved to to a new house, so I've decided to move down south here cuz I'm actually back in school, believe it or not, oh, wow. and uh, cool. going to college. Yeah. And so I uh, moved this way and Donald moved the other way and uh, 
that he's opening his bar too, because COVID's uh, he's a bartender yeah. and COVID shut down his bar for a year. And so uh, they just opened it back up. So he's got, so, and he's got twins, five-year-old twins. So he's got a lot going on. What a wild thing for people that worked in that industry. You know what I mean? To go yeah. through COVID and have to shut everything down, especially in LA. Like LA was very restrictive. I mean, exactly. we are here too. And can't like in Ontario where I'm from. It, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. yeah. It's really, it's really fucking stupid. Like there's a lot of, a lot of unnecessary things shut down. Uh, right. But I mean, they were trying to control it. It was, it was a bit out of control. And I know LA kind of was the same way at some point, right? Yeah. Santa Barbara where we were is really bad. Yeah. It was really bad. I mean, as far as restrictive, it yeah. was really bad. So yeah, uh, yeah it, it kept, uh, that's why he didn't work for 13 months. And wow. then one day they, they just say, okay, your bar's back open again. And it just coincided with everything else going on in his life. So that's extraordinary. And that is an yeah. insane amount of time to not be making any money. Right. Or like yeah. not, not from your regular day job anyway. Right. Right. That's insane. So did you, once you started playing bass, you said you were the guy that kind of formed the bands. What were those bands like? Just kind of just kids from well, school some, kind of thing? S- s- yeah, they were. Um, I met a kid um, when I was, uh, we, we were just messing around until I was 15. And then 15, I believe it or not, that young started getting serious. I met a kid who'd moved from uh, Ventura, which was the big city to us, um, uh, to my hometown, to Orchid. Mm-hmm. And him and I started a band. He, he was personally connected with all those nardcore bands that were happening at that time with uh, RKL and Rat Pack and all those bands. And so he was the one that was like, we can go play shows. Let's get a band together. So we actually got a band together called Nowhere Fast. Oh, nice. And that band, yeah, that band ended up doing good, uh, touring around California, no farther than California. But yeah. we played shows from the time we were 15 till the time we were 19. Oh, wow. And uh, um, we put out a demo, a nine-song demo that's actually pretty good. And, and uh, we had... Some some good times i met some people in that band where the next band i formed was called jungle fish and there's actually an atari's jungle fish split that's oh, wow. out there that you can you can google if you want and um uh jungle fish ended up playing with bands like uh, we played gilman street a couple times yeah yeah we played with the offspring and econo christ oh, and wow. ill repute and uh a lot of the bands that ended up getting bigger uh down the road no effects we played with in the early days wow. wagon we <laughs> played with they were they were called section eight back then um but we all played together so i've met all those guys in the jungle fish days so i had been part of the scene since and jungle fish actually has on youtube you can get one of our six song demos on YouTube, um, and and one of our early cassettes goes for a lot of money um, uh, out there on eBay and stuff like that. Oh wow! Um, we, we ended up putting out a few cassettes and a couple seven inches, and then um, that's when uh, you know Chris and I met. Uh, I was playing in Jungle Fish. It had been probably been in Jungle Fish like five years. Oh, so wow. I, was, I was about twenty five when I met Chris. So. That's pretty cool that you like got to play those like early shows with all those huge bands. Like, and I don't know how big they were maybe at the time, but I mean, No Effects has been huge forever. I mean, well, I can tell you that No Effects was an expensive band in those days. In the late eighties, it was uh, like three hundred bucks to book them. Holy and, shit! Uh, now, yeah. <laughs> you know, back which then. seems like nothing now, but back then it was a lot. Offspring, I think, used to claim a hundred bucks. So yeah, that, they were much they were much more reasonable. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's know. uh, <laughs> that's insane. And you said that lag wagon was called Section 8 before? Yeah, that's right, Section 8. I, I went to high school with a bunch of guys that had a band called Section 8. They weren't a punk band. They were like, um, I, I don't know, like I, I want to say metal, but I don't yeah. 100% know well, if that's the correct genre to put them in, you know what I mean? I can tell you that when Lagwagon went to record the Duh album, they were still called Section 8, and I believe it was Fat Mike that was like, uh, you realize there's a 100 Section 8s out there <laughs> yeah. in the world. You, 
you can't use the name Section 8. Yeah. So uh, one of their songs was called Lagwagon, so they changed the name to Lagwagon. Oh, well, awesome. That's a cool story. Yeah. That's uh, another thing. I had no idea. Like, I yeah. just always pictured Lagwagon being Lagwagon. Like, no, <laughs> no, Section 8. I actually have a flyer um, that I posted maybe on my on my Instagram, too, that was Section 8, Jungle Fish. Um, yeah, if you check it out, I think it's I on I think there. I saw that post. <laughs> yeah, I did. yeah, that that's that's Lagwagon. Nice. Section 8, Jungle Fish, Bad Samaritans, who are still around. They were on that on that show too yeah bad sam's went on to be on nitro on on uh offspring's label so. wow and we all used to all play together at a place in pico rivera down here in la called eugene's and the anti-club in la all these early clubs where you know this was before green day before nirvana really nirvana changed it for all of us we were all just playing these shows you know and uh we thought we had hit the we thought that that was as big as it was going to get yeah and then nirvana happened then green day and and just everything yeah everything's exploded eh i was just telling somebody the other day about about the ataris um and i was telling them about how i was like i was like you know you have these dreams from when you're a kid you hit this dream like did i ever think you know i was going to play an all major league baseball all-star game that wasn't even in my in my perception things yeah. like that yeah um because they asked me did you ever play saturday night live i was like no we didn't i went up and saw the studio we played conan o'brien and they said you want to go up and see the saturday night live studio we're like yeah so i was like yeah that's one thing i wanted to do i never got to do play saturday night live but i got pretty close well so, you played conan yeah. though which is amazing too right it I was mean... yeah Le- leno conan tonight show all that wow. stuff we did all that that's yeah. amazing yeah. Conan was such a like he always had the the more like I don't want to say underground that's that's the wrong term but the the lesser known bands right that were great right that, that weren't popular enough to be on like the Tonight Show and late night you know all that stuff and then he'd bring them up and all of a sudden like like I discovered a number of bands from just watching Conan. It was right. insane. Yeah, Conan definitely was the first late night TV show we were on. And then, like you said, it followed after that. We we had Tonight Show, Jimmy Kimmel, all happened after Conan. So. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. So this was all when you were, when you did Conan. I mean, obviously, Blue Skies was out. Was that was around the time of that a, album? No, it no? was also Long Astoria. Oh, none okay, of that yeah. Happened, none of that happened until we were a major label. Yeah, so, and was that yeah. due to the success of like the? That's the, due to the having Columbia Records. Uh, oh, okay. You you really can't get on those shows unless you're on a major label. There are exceptions, of course. Right. Uh, once in a while, they'll put a uh, an indie band on those on those shows, but no, they mostly only book major labels. Oh, so okay. It's sort of like uh, you're on Columbia Records and Columbia is going to put out a movie uh, and have this star on there. So I want you to have uh, the Ataris on there too, that kind of a thing. Yeah. I, I believe that's the, how that works, but uh, don't quote me. Yeah, that makes so. sense, I suppose. I was just thinking yeah. maybe it was like, because I, I remember like I, I'd been to the Ataris forever before uh, Boys of Summer, you know, you guys did right. that cover. and. Right. But it seemed like everybody knew who the Ataris was after that cover came out because it was on every radio station like 10 times a day. You yeah, know? it's still, it's still, it's funny. Um, and my kids and everybody still every summer, they know when summer's coming because people, the, the playing of Boys of Summer starts picking up. Yeah. Like, oh, I heard Boys of Summer. Oh, what time of year is it? Oh, it's <laughs> April. It's, it's, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah. Well, it was a great cover. I mean, it was such yeah. like, I, I think anyone that covers something like that and, and stays true enough to the original but makes it just slap you know compared to the old one which is what you guys did i think with that with that song and it it really because it harkens back to a time that people like older people will remember and so they hear the tune and it's not so heavy that it turns them off right it, and it reminds yeah. of the original so they can like it but also younger people who've never heard the song you know 
maybe now they like it. And even though they don't know the original, now they love this one, right? So it, it appeals to this this broad mass. And and I think you guys did it perfectly on that one. I have, it, well, Boys of Summer is such a crazy story that I, I, I'm a writer too. And so I, yeah. I wrote this short story, like uh, it's about 40 pages of how Boys of Summer found us. It definitely wasn't something we were looking for. And Chris, uh, my singer in the Atari's Chris Rowe is the ultimate artist. He would never want to be known for a cover and, and he shouldn't be. Um, but boys of summer literally dragged us to, to it. Um, and, uh, the short story, short version of it is that we were in a truck stop on our way to South by Southwest, um, outside of El Paso, Las Cruces, New Mexico. And we heard Chris and I were running up and down the aisles of the truck stop late at night. And we heard boys of summer over the intercom. And we're both like, oh, that's a great song, man. I remember that song and sharing our memories. And so the next night we started tinkering around. I heard him tinkering around with it at Soundcheck. And I'm like, oh, we should cover that song. And so the next night we, we had it down enough to play it in, in uh, San Antonio. And we played it and our manager was there at that show, getting ready for South by Southwest in Austin the next night. He's like, oh, you got to play that tomorrow night at your showcase. Uh, Columbia Records will love it. It's a good throwback. Chris is like, no, I ain't going to play a cover. I don't, I don't want to play that song. And I talk talked him into it i'm like chris chris we gotta play this song dude we, got, we want them to like us right off the bat right and we played it and it was like one of these things where it just was perfect it not only did did it come well come it come out well from us but the crowd went crazy the uh the record executives went crazy and all that so the funny thing is our a and r guy tim divine he found the clash and he's a really famous guy in in the in the music industry he's like uh you gotta record that song when you do so long a story chris is like heck no we ain't recording no cover song i ain't gonna be alien alien ant farm or any of these other cover songs he's like we have a career we have this great indie career why would i do the cover song they're like just record it i promise i won't put it on the record so chris finally buckles we record the song and it's supposed to go on the godzilla soundtrack i don't know if you remember the matthew uh broderick movie yeah the matthew broderick godzilla so they say we're going to put this on the godzilla soundtrack i promise it won't go on the record the godzilla comes out and they say oh well it didn't make it in time uh, but you've got to put it on Astoria. Uh, just put it on Astoria. I promise you it won't be a single. It won't be a single. Just put it on. Chris fought him the whole way. No, I'm not going to put that on the record. And they put it on Astoria. Finally, he buckled. They put it on Astoria. He's like, no way is that going to be a single. So we did our first single in this diary. In this diary, shot to number 10 for like four weeks. It was did really well. And so we were getting ready to do the second single and we wanted to do the title track, So Long Astoria. And Chris goes, um, uh, you know, this is what we're going to do. This is the video and all that. And, and all of a sudden, K-Rock started playing Boys of Summer. It was like April creeping into summertime. K-Rock started playing Boys of Summer and basically Columbia Records said, this is your second single. And if you don't make this your second single, we're going to drop you. And so <laughs> it forced... Cow forced us to do boys of summer and um if you ever see the video for that it's really dark the video is so boys of summer yeah. and chris wanted it that way on purpose because columbia was trying to get us to do this crazy like on the beach in a in a convertible so not us yeah. right and chris is like i'm gonna make the darkest video i possibly can so yeah. that's how the, that's why that video is dark and and to be fair to the true to the original don henley is a dark guy and that is a dark song it's just it doesn't come across that way well, well, even like Hotel California, you know, you say Don Don Henley's a dark guy. You listen to that that song and really listen to the lyrics. And a lot of people think this is, you know, this 
kind of whimsical song, but it's dark, man. Like that's the same with Boys to Summer. Exactly yeah. the same. I got to speak to Don Henley twice. Um, it was my job to call him a couple times to get permission to to use Boys to Summer, and um, uh, he is an awesome dude. But like. Like this total, uh, uh, that's in my short story. So if anyone ever gets out to my, finds my short story out there, it's, he's a rock and roll like poet. He is so great. And every time he talks, even if he's talking like me and you are talking right now, it's like poetry. Yeah. It's like listening to this total, like, like, you know, um, prophet, if you will, that kind of thing. Oh, so, I believe it. And like yeah, Hotel yeah. California, was it not, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe, and I don't know if you know or not, but wasn't it about like, cheating on your spouse or something isn't that where those it, lyrics come from it it is it is yeah it's yeah. It, hotel california is a dark song completely. yeah it's a dark yeah. story like when you really yeah. listen to it and, and kind of de- deconstruct it i suppose you know yeah he was with stevie nicks and uh they had this really crazy relationship where um uh she wrote the song sarah about uh they they he had gotten her pregnant and she had an abortion and all this crazy stuff so wow. um they they had a he was he was a he's a unique interesting guy yeah so. for sure for sure i believe it wasn't there something that happened though where he was angry with you guys about some late night performance or something like i seem to remember chris having something written on his shirt handwritten on his shirt if i'm not mistaken what did he write you wrote, who the fuck is Don Henley? <laughs> and in on in Sharpie on his chest. And we played the show and he spit blood like he loved Kiss. So he spit out blood like, um, uh, and this is in the short story. It's pretty good. He spit out blood like Gene Simmons on stage, right? And so we're walking off the stage and Rolling Stone magazine stops us and takes a picture of us. And it's a, a great picture. I still love it. You can find it out there yeah. today. And Chris has blood dripping down his neck and his feet and his shirt says, who the fuck is Don Henley? <laughs> and they put that picture in Rolling Stone. I didn't think anything of it until our manager called us and said, hey, Mike, we got a problem. Don Henley's really pissed off. Yeah. So, so it's funny. Our management reached out to Henley and all these people reached out to Don Henley. He wouldn't talk to him. And they finally said, you know, you're not going to be able to play that song on the All-Star game. And the All-Star, MLB doesn't want you unless you can play Boys of Summer. Right. And this is a really big deal for you, right? You're you're playing basically to millions of people on live TV. And so they gave me these two phone numbers for Don Henley and said, I think these might work. I got these from a source, this and that. <laughs> so I left Don Henley this crazy message one night after we played the Kimmel show. Right. I left him a message on the phone that was just like, uh, yo, dude, uh, I'm a huge fan, and, and Chris didn't mean it, it to come across the way it did, and um, and uh, and that's when he called me back the next day, and he was like all sage like, well, like I told you when right. he spoke to me, he was so cool about that. Nice. So, um, yeah, he I remember his first line was like, I know what it's like to be young and climbing the ladder of rock and roll, and everything's a big deal. Those were his first <laughs> words to me. It was just like, wow, I'm talking to like a god or something. Well, he understands but, it for sure, right? He's got to know where that was coming he, he, from. He understood it after I explained it. But I left this message where I literally, I literally, my dad got killed in a car accident when I was 19. Yeah. And we, he, he loved the Eagles. And you were talking about Hotel California. And we played Life in the Past Lane. He died in a car accident at his funeral because he loved that song. And so basically, um, I told Henley in a voice message on his phone about that, playing his song at my dad's funeral. Wow. And that got him to call me back. 
Nice. Because uh, I was basically almost crying in the in the message. I was just like, uh, "This is a true story," and you're not going to believe this, but I'm an ultimate fan. And Boys of Summer is is a we both Chris and I love that song. I told him the story I told you, which mm-hmm. is we were sharing our memories is why we covered it. Yeah. I was like, I was like, Chris wrote that shirt because as an artist, he got upset about uh, everyone thinking that the Ataris were just this cover song. Yeah. Everything we worried about happened. Right. So, you know, what are yeah. you going to do? Well, I mean, what can you do? But I mean, it's, it makes for a great story. I mean, how many people can say yeah. that? You know what I mean? Like, just the fact that he, that you uh, pulled on Don Henley's heartstrings enough that he called you back, you know, after, after a, an incident like that, you know what I mean, is amazing. The funny thing is, too, is ever the businessman, uh, a lot of people were doing those team-ups back then where they would play the song with the with the artist. Yeah. And I pitched him, I pitched him to play the MTV Music Awards with us. Oh, wow. Um, live. And he turned me down flat. Wow, seriously? <laughs> not in like a bad way, just like a, not my, not my, not my gig, brother. I'm surprised <laughs> you know that he wouldn't have jumped at that. You know what I mean? Like to, just to get back, like it's his tune and you think he'd be stoked to play something that I big. I just don't think he, I just don't think he needed it. Or, no, of or course not. He, yeah. And it's just one of those things where he, he he's like, thanks for that. I was like, but the conversation went so well that I ended up pitching him that at the end. And yeah. then we played something in Canada. I can't remember what it was, this late show up there that was like the the equivalent of, of Letterman. I don't even remember it now. Yeah. Um, but I had to I had to call him one more time and ask him to play uh, that song live on that show. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember the name. Was of the that, was that host a kind of a round guy with a bald head and a little bit of a, yeah. Beard? Yeah. What, the Mike, called? the Mike Bullard show was called. Yeah, yeah. That was it. Mike Bullard. Yeah. Yes. It was the only like Canadian late night talk show. And it was, I mean, to be fair, it was pretty, pretty rough. <laughs> even, yeah. for that, even for those days, it wasn't very, a very good late night show. I can't even believe that you guys made it. Like you guys even played that show to be honest. Yeah, with we you. did. We played the Mike Bullard show. I remember that we got mugs. That's how I remember the name from that. Yeah. That's funny. While we're on the topic of so long, or on the subject of so long Astoria, um, and speaking of dark songs, I don't I don't want to bring the the level of podcast down, but I know there's a song there called "The Hero Die." What is it? "The Hero Dies" in this one, and that's, that's right. a song that you wrote, or at least co-wrote about your father. I, I, correct? Well, no, I wrote the uh, Chris wrote the lyrics, and I wrote the music to that song. Okay, so yeah, that, then that's uh, that's where that song comes from. So um, uh, Chris actually wrote that about his grandmother. That okay. song about his grandmother. So um, uh, I wrote the music to that song, and uh, I had that song for years. It actually came. I think I wrote it during the Ataris, but I was on a beach in and thinking about my dad um, on a beach in Kauai when I wrote that song on my acoustic bass. And so I brought that in to uh, Johnny and Kid, and we played around with it a while. And then Chris thought it was a great song, and he, he ended up uh, reworking it and putting it on a story. See, it's so funny so, how Wikipedia can let you down. You know, like I do yeah. a lot of research before <laughs> these things, and that's one yeah. of the things I read Wikipedia, and I thought, and then I listened to the song because I had heard, obviously, I'd heard the album a number of times, but I yeah, listened yeah, back yeah. to it, and I thought, yeah, I can hear that, right? That sounds plausible. I should ask him about that. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. I'm glad we cleared yeah. it up, though. I, yeah, and 
it is uh, a great song and uh it is probably like i always say that um like i wrote uh the the music to in spite of the world on blue skies and so uh that's another one of those bass driven songs that i wrote um that chris takes and reworks so yeah. i always say that i was the george harrison of the ataris i always <laughs> got i always got one song per per, per record so i always thought he didn't get enough credit you know what i mean he didn't get yeah. enough tries in in the beatles you know yeah, exactly. Exactly. I agree. 100%. He had a great he had a great solo career. And like, you know, had they had given him a few more tri- like songs in the Beatles, who knows? Right. Well, that, that's why I call myself the George Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of the Ataris, since we're on the, the Atari stuff right now. Sure. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is the, all this Chris Rowe stuff that I hear about him being difficult to be in a band with. And, you know, there was that one public outburst where he had the issue with the drummer on stage. And unfortunately, right. it was right around the time where everybody had a cell phone camera. So right. it was recorded and dropped on the Internet and, and, and all the headlines. Chris Rowe's an asshole. Chris Rowe's hard. What was your what was your experience working with him in that in that group? You were in that band for how long? 11 years. 11 uh, years, yeah. Well, and Chris and I are still... So I was in the band from 96 to to 2006 So about 10, 11 years. And then I did reunion tours in 2013 and Australia in 2016. So 2013, 2016. And I actually was uh, going to go out on work warp tour with them 2017, but my legal issues, uh, I decided to stay home and spend time with my family yeah. instead. Sure. Um, I could have go- gone, but uh, I decided, hey, uh, I think something's going to happen. I'm going to have to go away. So I, I, I bowed out of that. Let me just say about, about Chris straight up is that we are still friends right now. We talk uh, uh, mostly digitally, you know, through, through uh, um, texting and yep. things like that yep. uh, we, we have we did speak uh, on the phone about a month ago um i will say that i love him and he's a great guy he is a unique personality and he um a lot of people don't know how to deal with chris i knew how to deal with chris and sadly my time in the ataris came to an end because of uh i was doing a lot of drugs uh me and the drummer were doing a lot of, a lot of coke and stuff like that and so i decided to to start versus the world, I basically just left the Ataris. Uh, I never, I never was kicked out or anything. I just basically in 2005 left the Ataris, went straight to versus the world, and we just took off with no use for a name and did and toured around the world with them. Uh, Tony loved me and Tony were friends for years. Goes way back to the Ataris uh, doing the Fat Records tour in the like 97, I think, and we had been close friends ever since then. And he loved versus the world. He loved Donald, and so basically we. I I just went from one to the other and just kind of took off that way and versus the world allowed me to not have to hide anything that I was doing um, and just be who be who I was whereas Chris you know and to, to Chris's you know Chris didn't like that and um, and I understand that now looking back on it I do um, it, it didn't so much get in the way of the band but when you have different personalities like that people that do party people that don't party then then it becomes a problem um it's better to be in a band like versus where everybody parties yeah. so yeah know well for I mean? sure so, right yeah and, um, and we're all we're all older wiser <laughs> most everyone's pretty sober I'm, I'm sober now two and a half years Good. sober congratulations like not, e- not even wine um and um i will say um but, you know, it's uh, that definitely led to me and Kid, Chris Knapp, uh, 
leaving the Ataris at that time. Mm. And um, and if I had it to do again, I would probably have uh, tried to keep it together. Yeah. But you know, you know, when you're doing something for ten years, it's hard to see in the moment. Mm-hmm. You're just kind of caught up in the in the whirlwind of everything that's going on. And oh, I just sure. thought. I just thought, oh, well, Versus the World has this tour of Europe with no use for a name and Japan. And, and uh, all right, well, I'm done. I'm going with I'm going with Versus. And so but um, I love Chris and he is difficult um, if if you make it difficult. Basically, uh, um, you know, he he's a he's a what, what would I say? Um He's an exotic taste, and I, <laughs> I, I, I I get along good with Chris. I always have, and that's why we made a great partnership. Yeah. I believe the Atari success for all those early years came from him and him and my partnership. And I believe that um, I made it possible. I helped make it possible for Chris to thrive. And um, I think that there's been times when Chris has surrounded himself with people that haven't been able to do that. And that's all I can say is that um, uh, I do love him and I, I do know where people are coming from when they do say he's difficult. I'm sure he's difficult to them, mm-hmm. but but he's just he's a, he's a strong personality and yeah. you just have to uh, either either you, you deal with it or you don't. So. Yeah, and a lot of artists are like that, right? I mean, there's, there's, there. He, he's a true artist. Yeah, you're exactly right. He's a true artist, and I, I'm a, I'm a businessman. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, and you have to know when, you know, when, when the artist needs to be an artist. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of guys that that don't see that. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, but but yeah, Chris, Chris is a, a unique character for sure. <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I hear that a lot, but none of the stuff I ever see or or like. He was recently on, I don't want to say recently, maybe like, might have been a year ago now, uh, on the, uh, there's a podcast called That One Time on Tour with Chris Swinney, uh, who was yeah, also yeah, in the Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. I've heard of it, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, because he was in the band with Chris, obviously, at, at some point, they they had a very um, uh, friendly conversation because they they know each other, right? They, they right. toured and, and they know each other. And, and he didn't come across as someone that seemed very difficult to get along with. And, and Chris Swinney's never said anything about it. Clearly he had the guy on his podcast. So you right. know, here's two people sort of right from the horse's mouth that, you know, have no trouble with him. So I, I feel like a lot of that stuff's been blown up over the years and, you know, well, it all, de- it all depends. I mean, the drummer that, uh, that, uh, Chris got into a fight with, um, he, he was wasted. Chris doesn't put yeah. up with pe- people being wasted on stage. I can tell you that from personal experience. And if it affects your your performance, if it affects the show that you're going to give to the fans, then I can see where Chris is coming from um, yeah. about uh, getting upset with that. Uh, one thing with the reunion tours that we always tried to adhere to, which was, and we were still partying during that time, um, and Donald went with me on both of those both of those reunion tours. I had Don- Donald played in the Ataris oh, during nice. those tours. Um, and uh, he played like extra guitar backup vocals and the one thing about that is is that we always tried to do our partying after the show so yeah that, that might be a good segue into into versus the world because i you know again another i'm a newer fan of that band i only just discovered them because uh josh lewis of the bomb pops who also plays in murderland uh had some youtube right. videos and right. he was recording some stuff and he just mentioned he did like a drum cover of of, uh, he said, this is a Versus the World song. They're one of my favorite bands in the world. And I thought, I've never even heard of them, right? So I looked them up, and I was like, holy cow. And all right. of a sudden, I've been listening to Homesick, Roadsick for like that whole record for the yeah. last couple of months and just loving it. You know what I mean? Like, it's 
it's got a lot of heart and soul, but it's got some bangers on it too, man. Like that title track is an amazing tune, you know? And and the Thank video you. is amazing as well. That. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, our drummer, uh, our drummer for the last two verses record, Brian Charlson, um, Sean Sellers of Good Riddance is now playing drums with yep. verses. But Brian Charlson played on our last two verses records. And Brian, um, uh, his brother is a great videographer. He, he does all kinds of different stuff. Uh, Mikey, Mikey Charlson's his name. Mm-hmm. And um, Mikey actually did every video, every versus the world video, all our tour videos, all that stuff you see by Mikey. And he's just a pro. So, yeah, you can't go wrong when, when you got a when you got a pro that's part of part of the entourage you know what i mean so <laughs> yeah he, he's he is amazing he he's we feel like mikey might as well be a member of the band yeah. so we had a bunch of people like that that surrounded versus the world that were that were really you know versus the world is always a lot of us are in different bands chris flippin's in different band i'm in the ataris yep. um and and uh sean sellers or or brian we'd have people going in and out a lot on tours so flip would have to go with Lagwagon, and so we would bring in tony Rafa from Murderland and Tony would come in and, yep. and that's how Tony became part of the band is that he was he was taking Chris's place and I finally was uh, like why don't we make Tony a full-time member yeah, this is yeah. you know what I mean so and that's that's how that all went around yeah Tony but, Barnes yeah. is fucking awesome man like I'm a huge yeah. Murderland fan too and again talk about a new fan oh what a ripping band but um getting back onto the versus the world stuff how did so you talked a little bit about how uh you guys sort of put that band together in the early days but how did you how did you meet Donald so Donald was a 15-year-old fan that lived in Plano, Texas, that started coming to Atari shows in uh, Dallas. And so we started seeing this kid show up every time we'd come through Dallas, and we'd be like, oh, this kid's cool, man. Band, And we were like, yeah, yeah, everybody said they got a band, right? And so we said, if you're ever in Santa Barbara, look us up, you know? Um, and we opened our record store down on Haley in Santa Barbara. We said, so we got to go to Santa Barbara if you're ever in town, you know, you know, look us up. One day we came home from tour and Donald's there. He, he like basically took a suitcase and moved away from home and came to Santa Barbara kind of to follow the Ataris. You'd be shocked how often that happened during those days. A lot of people heard about our record store and started moving to Santa Barbara. So he started sleeping. Uh, we gave him a job sorry, at Down on was, Haley. And sorry, this was the Atari's record store? Yeah, Atari's. We had a record store down on Haley, if you never heard of it. I it didn't. Was, no, I, this is the first yeah, time I heard of it. Yeah, Google around, you'll see a bunch of stuff on it. It was great. It was a great record store. It lasted, I think, from 99 to 2005, something like that. It was open, and we would have shows there, anyone stopping through, meet and greets, signings, that kind of a thing. And, oh, cool. and it was basically Chris and I's, our dream was always, you know, if we ever could, we were going to open our own record store, and that's what Down on Haley was. was nice. Chris and I's, like, record store dream. So, oh, cool, yeah, cool. cool. We had spreads in Rolling Stone uh, magazine for the record store and Krang magazine. So, yeah, you can see some stuff out there, pictures of the old store, things like that. Oh, wicked. See, if social yeah. media had been around back then, I might have known about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> there was nothing like imagine? that back then. Yeah. Oh, my God. It, it was good enough. <laughs> it was busy enough as it was. I couldn't imagine if social media and. uh yeah, thank God there wasn't social media back then. Yeah. So Don comes down. He's now... 
Doug runs away from home yeah. in, in Texas and just shows up at our record store. And he's like, uh, yeah, you said if I'm ever out in California to come look you up, I'm here. And we basically said, oh, wow, man, you're, you're serious. So we put him to work at the record store and uh, he went and slept on my drummer, Chris, Chris Knapp's house uh, on, on his couch, at his house on his couch. And so that's how we met Donald, really, for real. And so what would happen was Donald kept telling us, oh, I play guitar and sing, I play guitar and sing. We're like, yeah, yeah, everybody plays guitar <laughs> and sings, right? And so, um, and he worked at the record store. And so what we would do is, as we were rehearsing for So Long Astoria, there was times when Chris would, would, would have us three rehearse, me, Johnny, and Chris Knapp, kid, all play the songs over and over again while he was out doing photography for the record. Mm -hmm. And so we would, we would have Donald come stand in and, and sing and uh, play guitar uh, basically as Chris's spot. And that was when I realized, oh my God, this kid's good, man. This kid, this kid's got some, got some stuff. And so it was during that time after Astoria, we toured two years nonstop and we got home and had a break. And I was like, I didn't want to stop playing. So I told Donald, let's, let's start a band. Let's play those songs that you've been showing me. And so we started the first version of Versus the World with a drummer for Annie Breeze and this other kid, Nick, on guitar. And that ended up being the first record that went on on Kung Fu. Nice, nice. And so, but you guys weren't always versus the world, right? When you first started, were you, did I read this? Is this correct that you guys were called Pen Cap Chew? Or is that sort that's of... That's right. Uh, yeah? No, that's real. That's real. Uh, we, were, we were called Pen Cap Chew. We played, uh, we went to South by Southwest as Pen Cap Chew. And we also played a few shows. And it was a similar to the Lagwagon story I told you earlier, where we got signed to Kung Fu and Joe Escalani said... Uh, you can't use Ben Capchu. No one will pronounce that right. You got to change the name. And <laughs> yeah. so Donald had always had Versus the World in his pocket. So we changed the name to, to Versus the World. But Pen Cap Chew is the name of my publishing company on ASCAP. Oh, nice. And I, I ripped that off from Nirvana. Yeah. Nirvana, uh, yeah, their first, one of the first names they used was Pen Cap Chew. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned Nirvana earlier. And, and clearly, like, you guys were a fan if you named the band sort of after that. You know what I mean? huge Nirvana nurse. So yeah, I saw Nirvana play three times in the day and like three, four times, I think twice in the punk rock days before they were major when they were on stuff and then twice, twice when they were uh, after the big success. So oh, wow. I really liked the fact that a punk rock band could, 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 you know, make the mainstream. I think that was the big beginning for, for everybody. Right. For day for the offspring for everybody. Hmm. Nice. And so you, you named the band Pen Cap Chew at the start. And sorry, I, I didn't catch that. Who, who stopped you from using that in the long run? Uh, Joe, Joe Escalante, the uh, owner of Kung Fu Records, bass player for the Vandals. <laughs> okay. Joe was the guy that was like, okay. He was like, I'll put out this record, this, this record. I like the band a lot. He's like, but you can't name it Pen Cap Chew. Nobody will know how to say that. <laughs> so uh, so Don, Donald always had Versus the World in his pocket. Uh, and I, I, I love that name. And so I was like, yeah, that's a great, that's a great name. Let's do that. That's better than Pen Cap Chew. It was sort of just sort of like, you know, I was still in the Ataris at the time. It was sort of just like a, a, a band, a side project thing that I didn't really take that seriously until 
until, um, you know, we started playing shows and I was like, God, Don Donald's really good. And, and these songs are good. And, and this could be something. And then, and then Joe was like, I want to put out the record. And I had to actually, I was still on Columbia records. And so I had to get a refusal from them and they listened to the record and they were like, Oh, this is good. And they even hemmed in hot and thought about putting it out until ultimately Joe got to put it out. Wow. Yeah, Don's like an incredible writer too, man. Like that's that's why I wanted to hopefully get him on the show still at some point because his uh, his writing is is incredible. Not only his his music, but his his lyrics as well. How much uh, influence did you have in the writing in that band, like the music writing? You know, I, I'm it's basically the same um, as as the Atari's. Um, I'm basically the guy that's just like let try to do this part this many times and I think I'm a sensible songwriter um so basically I would bring a song in and I would I would just give my a little bit of input here and there but just like Chris uh he's the artist Donald's the artist in versus the world Chris Rose the artist in the Ataris and basically my job and yeah I do write little parts here and there like like in spite of the world and um hero dies in this one I do have a lot of input in those songs but for the most part those guys are the artists and and I, I feel blessed to have met both of them. I, I'm, I'm, I'm this guy that's lucky. I've been in two great bands with two great artists, and um, both of the, both of them are those are those people. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's 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 amazing. And like that lineup of that band, like you know, you mentioned uh, Sean Sellers is in there now, and yourself who was in the Ataris, and um, you know, you had you had members of Good Riddance, and or which is Sean Sellers. Um, and uh, oh, Jesus! Names escape me from Lagwagon. Is it uh, uh, okay. Chris? 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 Chris Flippin. Yes, Chris, Chris Flippin from Lagwagon. Yeah. Yes. And then we've had all kinds of uh, great people that have toured with us. Uh, you know, Gavin from Sensible did a tour with us. Soundwave in Australia with us, and first drummer. And we've just we've always been blessed with with playing. Look, what we've tried to do is just to get our friends to play with us. And so, uh, right. what we do is, if somebody can't make a tour, and because we're all busy with in life is busy as you know and uh we all love to tour the only person that can never miss a show i always joke to him about this is donald 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 can't miss a versus the world show chris Rowe can't miss an atari show <laughs> so so they're screwed as the singer if they want a day off well they gotta wait till the shows are over but uh everybody else <laughs> has has always been able to go in and out and you know for the most part be replaceable really so right the, the you you go to the show and you want you want to hear the singer sing the songs and and those are the artists. Right well, there, yeah, I so. mean, how do you <laughs> how are you going to see a versus the world show with O'Donnell? I suppose that's pretty tough. Exactly. Exactly. All right, so Mike, uh, I understand that um, you recently had a little bit of of legal trouble. Um, you know, hopefully that's all behind you uh, uh, now. But uh, with that said, um, how have you been? Like, uh, is life uh, getting back to somewhat normal for you these days, or? Um, life is, I think life has changed, uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm home and that's the most important thing. And, and it really, it all started that I worked for a company, um, in the mid two thousands after the Atari's, after I left the Atari's, I worked for this company for four years and I saw, I thought, man, I could, I could do my own company just like that. It was a real estate book and website. Mm -hmm. And then I ran my company for seven years 
Um, and then after 11 years in that industry, I had no idea that what I was doing was was something wrong, let alone end up me going to prison camp for two years, as I did. Yeah. But um, I closed the company as soon as I was informed that what I was doing wasn't legal. And in fact, uh, I did that a year and a half before I was even criminally indicted. Um, the one thing I can say is I'm sorry, very sorry to all my family, my bandmates and my friends for having put them through any of that. Um, and any customer, obviously, from my company that was felt misled. Um, I, that being said, I have paid my debt to society, so to speak. And now I'm, I'm on uh, home monitoring. And um, like I said, I did serve two day, two years and five days at a federal prison camp. The cool thing about camp, is, as we were talking about earlier, is that uh, I helped run the horticulture program there. So I got to raise chickens and rabbits and grow vegetables. And, you know, like we talked about before, is I think you turn any negative in this life into a positive. That's how that's how you're successful. And, um, uh, you know, I, I got into shape. I lost a bunch of weight and I don't think I got sober and I don't think I would accomplish those things um, if I hadn't have uh, hadn't gone through that experience. Um, you know, the good news is that um, I'm starting from a clean slate and any fines associated mm -hmm. with that are all paid off. And. Um, I can't get, wait to get back to rocking with my band um, when this home monitoring ends, which I hope is in a couple of years. Right. Um, until that, I'm working on my writing. So yeah. I've been... Yeah. yeah, you mentioned that earlier, that you, you were a writer, and we kind of skipped past it a little bit. I'd like to go back to that a little bit. Um, just before we do, just just remind me again, uh, was it 2019 that you said you went away to, to the camp? Yeah, yeah. So um, I actually uh, was... Um, and I ran my company between 2009 and 2016. Like I said, uh, wasn't didn't think anything of it. And then in 2016, I got a um, a call that said, "Hey, you know, uh, from my lawyer that basically said, uh, you know, you need to uh, shut down your company because you're being investigated." So I shut it down immediately. And then it wasn't until uh, late 2017, um, like almost a year and a half later, that uh, I found out that I was criminally indicted. Uh, once that happened, the, the company had been already shut down for two and a, for a year and a half. Um, but uh, then I started the legal process, which I finally um, ended up entering camp in uh, April 2019. And then I just got out April 21st, 2021. So, uh, yeah, two years, five days is, uh, trust me, I counted the days. Oh, <laughs> I, I can imagine. I, I, I mean, even like you said, even as 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 you know, as pleasant as that experience was for what it was, I mean, it's right. nice to be, to have your freedom back, I can imagine. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a, quite an experience to be pulled away from your life um, like that. But, you know, like I said, I turned it into a positive and, and um, I saw a lot of guys that, um, that let it, let it eat them up and, and uh, turn into a negative that they just can't get out of. But that's, that's not my personality, never has been. Right. Good for you, man. That's awesome. So when, so like the writing, did it start while you were away or have you, is this something you've been doing for a while? Uh, I've always been known as kind of a writer. Um, all the bands I've been in uh, know that I'm a writer. I'm a journaler. I journal mm -hmm. a lot every single day. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, like I was talking earlier, I do, um, I'm in college and uh, I've always been doing college classes off and on. And so um, there's a lot of writing involved in that, as you can imagine. And so yeah. 
I just naturally uh, like to write stories. I'm a storyteller, as you can tell by all the talking that we do. And so <laughs> I just kind of, I just kind of put that down on paper, and it, and it works well for me. Right. So, so um, you, you mentioned you had the short story about uh, about the, how the Boys of Summer came to be, how you guys got that yep. cover uh, made. Uh, but uh, what about uh, lyrics for like stuff? Have you? Have you written any any lyrics for any tunes or? Yeah, I'm not really a lyric writer. I, I told you earlier is that I just happen to be one of the luckiest bass players in the world. Where I'm in the band, two two different bands with two geniuses. Right. Like both of them are are lyrical geniuses. I wrote lyrics. I was in a band for years leading up to the Atari's called Jungle Fish, and I wrote lyrics, all the lyrics for that band. Mm-hmm. And they ended up being. It was in the. That was in the late 80s, early 90s. So they were more political back then. I, I, I delved in a little bit about my dad's accident, which I talked to you about earlier. My dad was in a yep. car accident. And I had a little bit of personal lyrics, but but mostly political uh, lyrics. And um, it was the time. Punk rock was political back then. Yep. And so um, I, I have written lyrics, but never for the two bands that I'm successful in. How's that? So, um, <laughs> you know, I can write lyrics and... I really haven't thought about it because I'm in a band with these two guys that when I see their lyrics, I mean, two different bands with these guys that when I see Chris's lyrics, when I see Donald's lyrics, I'm just like, man, these guys, I can't, I couldn't say that any better. And I'm constantly in awe of them. And I I get to be good friends with both those guys. So it's amazing. um, You know, that's what I tell people too, is that when, when I'm standing up there playing bass next to those guys, I'm in awe of their voices, how good they sing. Um, because I was a singer lyricist for a band for many years, right? And and it just it did, couldn't even touch how good those guys are. <laughs> so, yeah, they're they're a couple of pretty incredible uh, singer songwriters, that's for sure. You know? Yeah. Um. Now your short stories. Are you uh, still writing short stories these days, or are you? Working I am. Those? Yeah. You know, I have a few of them. I'm trying to compile a bunch of them. Uh, I have. Um. I, I'm working on four different novels. I got. I. You know. I, I skip around usually, so I got four different novel ideas that are really good. And what I do is I write chapters in all of those that are. My, the way I write is more like each chapter of my novel is sort of like a short story that can stand on its own. Yeah. So I kind of send those out. Um, I haven't really been pushing them that much until now that I'm home. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I am going to start pushing those out. I do have an offer from a, um, a publishing company in Europe to put out a book. Oh, wow. Uh, and so I'm in negotiation with that right now, but I'm kind of really looking, I'm not sure I'm going to jump on that yet because I just got home a couple yeah. months ago. So I'm trying to just figure it out right now, but, uh, I've sent my, um, stories around, especially to all the guys, um, in the band and stuff, uh, so that they could see them because I was like, yo, you know, you're mentioned in here. So if there's anything you want me to change, let, <laughs> let me know before they go out. Cause I want to give them that option and they're, they're all good with it and they all think it's pretty good. So how much writing did you do while you were away? Uh, every day, really? every single day, really? every single day. I never missed a day. So wow. I wrote every day. And, and that just wasn't, uh, that just wasn't my stories or my novels, which I worked on all of that. Um, but also a lot of papers cause I went to college while I was there too. Right. Right. That's so, awesome that they, uh, you were able to go to school while you're there too, which is incredible. Right. Right? Uh, like, you know, those are things that you don't really think about, yeah. uh, when you're going to go away, you know, you, you think, Oh my gosh, what's this going to be like? And then you get there and, and, you know, like I said, there's a lot of guys that just watch TV and, and, uh, they don't, they don't take advantage of the time, but you know, I mean, 
you know, out here, uh, you know, in the everyday life is, is a grind and it's fast. And if you have time to read, you know, I read about, I think in the, in the two years I was gone, I read probably 90 books. And so every, every novel that I read, I would, uh, I kept a journal and I would do a review, a five-star review on one to five stars and, uh, and then do a little book review of them. And that way it was cool. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, the other thing that I kind of missed was you told me what you went to school for, but it was a little bit garbled. So what? Oh, yeah. So I'm um, um, almost I have a, we, we have a two year degree and four year degree here in the States. I don't know if you have the same thing in Canada, yeah. but two year degree is called the associate. So I'll have my associate's degree in psychology um, before the end of the year. And then that'll put me about two thirds the way through my bachelor's degree for psychology. My ultimate goal is to go to law school after that to try to learn about the things that uh, uh, ended ended getting me in in into camp in the first place. Right. And uh, also because I did a lot of um, a lot of uh, tinkering with the law while I was gone, mm-hmm. so that really got me interested in things that I never was. Now. Um, I'm not sure that I, I'm more of a two years at a time guy. So um, I'm going to finish this bachelor's degree in psychology and then see where I'm at before I get too crazy about, yeah, I'm going to go to law school or not. Right. But that, that's, that's kind of the dream. And I'm pretty good at making, making those dreams come true. So that's awesome, man. That's amazing. Like law schools, uh, law school, like I, I can't imagine, I, I always hated school. So for me to think about going back to school, even at my age, I'm 39, I'll be 40 in like in January, but uh, it feels strange and scary to me to be starting school again. You know what I mean? So good for you, man. Like the fact that you like have that foresight and, and while you were away, like actually use the time for something productive is incredible. Yeah. Well, I had two, two psychology classes that I actually, uh, were in the middle of was in the middle of that I had to finish just over this last two months. Um, so it was a little bit of work to call to college and be like, yo, I'm not there no more. I'm here. Yeah. Um, and so I had to transfer from one one uh, medium to the next uh, from from like workbook to Zoom like yeah. we're doing right now. Yeah. But it worked out good. I ended up getting two A's in those classes and, nice. and I'm, all, I'm all registered for the summer. So yeah, summer and then the fall and then, and then I'm done with that first degree. So I'm pretty stoked on that. Awesome, man. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned you can't tour obviously cause you're still sort of under, um, under supervision, but, uh, what's your future like with, with your bands then like with versus the world, are, are you sort of, have you sort of departed that now permanently that project? Not, not permanently. Um, definitely. I know that I from, from this situation, I'm definitely not playing in, in any band right now, but, uh, I do intend versus the world is Donald and my band and Donald's my best friend. And we talk about it all the time in the moment that I'm willing, uh, that I'm ready to come back and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just cross that bridge when I get to it. And he says, no, it's my band. Then I'm in when I come back. But until that time, which is a couple years off from now, at least at the very least, then, you know, this is just, um, uh, uh, dog cake from Murderland is is playing bass on the new record, and I'm uh, um, our drummer Brian Charlson also left. He started a coffee company called Dark Horse Coffee. I don't know if you've heard of it. I have but, heard of it. Yeah. Uh, he started a coffee company in yeah in San Diego with his brothers, and so Brian left at the same time too. So that's where Sean Sellers comes in on drums and Cupcakes playing bass from Murderland, and so it's sort of going to be a new a new lineup for this new verse of the world record. 
Yeah, 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 for sure. And, um, you know, like, uh, I hope that you can uh, get back in there one day. I mean, once all this stuff is behind you, because, you know, (laughs) it was cool to see that lineup. Like, in that video, uh, like I was talking about for Homesick Roadsick, um, that lineup is super impressive. (laughs) You know, like, to get back to that would be really cool. Not that Pat's a... Pat's a, a bad guy to have around either uh, right. in versus the world, but it's, uh, you know, it was cool for me to see all you guys on that stage in that video. And we'll, we'll, we'll you know, the way that we work in versus anyway, flips gone with lag wagon, Pat will probably go to guitar. I mean, it, it, that's the way we've always worked versus the world is we always sort of just kind of jump around and have other people come in and out. So um, I, I do foresee a time where I do come back, but right now it's, it's, it's something that, you know, I'm just not really thinking about until, until uh, you know, I'm just going to try to, to, like I said, I'm going back to college. So once I finish that, then, um, uh, then I'm going to think about law school, but we'll see where I am because that'll coincide right about with the time I'm done with this supervision. And maybe I can go back on tour again and we'll see, we'll see what the world happens. Here. Um, now you're talking about touring before with some, some incredible acts, like as part of versus the world, who are some of like the, like thinking back to those times, who are some of the bands that you, that you like really enjoyed touring with? Who are your favorites? Well, like I said before, um, uh, No Use for a Name was like almost, I mean, Tony Sly was a good friend of mine and almost one of my favorite bands to tour with in both the Atari and versus the world. I, I love No Use for a Name and I love the band and I, I love touring with them. So I think that's probably my all-time favorite band, but um, Lagwagon are my brothers from Santa Barbara and we've always had a good time touring with them, both both. No, both uh, versus the world and the Atari's tour with Lagwagon, and the same with the Vandals are another band that I love. I love to play with. So all those bands I think are amazing. Yeah, the Vandals were huge for me too when I was a kid. I remember we saw them at. Uh, did you guys ever play? Um, oh, geez, I can't remember the name of the club now. The Embassy Hotel, I think it was called. Did you guys ever play there? Where's that at? That's in London, Ontario. I think so. I think the Ataris played there, but not versus the world. I, I believe that the Ataris played there once. Yeah, and, and it, was a, it was a popular spot. It burned down a number of years ago. I mean, Call the Office was the other big one. It was that little small club with the corner stage. I'm sure you guys played there. Oh, yeah, Call the Office. I remember that, too. Yeah, and so, but over at the Embassy Hotel, um, we, were, we saw them, and Warren from the Vandals uh, put his foot up on the monitor um, to... Just, uh, you know, just to rock out a little harder. And he was right in the middle of something important on the gu- on the guitar. And somebody whipped down his shorts and there's his manhood in all its glory just swinging, ar- <laughs> swinging around. So it was always uh, the Vandals have always a special place in uh, in my heart because that memory is, just makes me laugh every time I think of it. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the Vandals are the reason why the Ataris got popular. Joe put out all of our records. The same goes for verses. He's put out two of the three he put out homesick roadsick and he put out the first versus the world record so i mean joe is basically my mentor in music um and uh, a, just a great guy a stand-up guy yeah that's a that's an incredible label is is warren part of that label too is that is no, that he, no he's not uh joe actually sold the label so he doesn't even own the label anymore uh joe sold the label uh i believe a couple years ago two years ago so uh kung fu isn't even owned by the vandals at all anymore but um, but Joe ran the label from, God, uh, from, you know, the early 90s until until 2018, I believe. Nice. And uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about was you were talking about, uh, you know, your bands and stuff that you were in and how you got into playing in bands and playing bass. But 
we talked about your punk influences, but what else were you listening to when you were a kid? Like, were you always a punk guy or did you, what else were you? No, into? I was, I was a metal kid. Uh-huh. I, I grew up listening to heavy metal. Um, my stepmom was real, she played guitar that kind of got me into guitar. And so she started taking to me, me to shows young, um, Dio and I saw Metallica and stuff before they were very, you know, when they were just a club band at the country club down here in LA. And so it wasn't until I told you that buddy of mine moved from Ventura and turned me on to punk rock. I think I turned, I really got into punk rock when I was about 14, 15, but up until then, until I was like 13, 14, it was metal. So that was during the, yeah, that was the new age of heavy metal. That was when all those bands were coming over from, from England, uh, you know, uh, Merciful Fate and Motorhead and Def Leppard. And, you know, that was before all the, all those bands went major label and sold out. So <laughs> that's incredible, man. I so many people that are into punk are also into metal and I was never like a huge metal guy, like, like a little bit here and there, you know what I mean? But punk for right. me has always been sort of where it was at. That's where my heart always was when I was younger. But I always had a little bit, uh, my uncle was an early punk, a seventies punk. Um, he actually is, um, he, uh, he did a, a magazine, a, a zine that was really popular in San Francisco in the really early days of punk, late seventies, early eighties called unsound. And my uncle did this almost famous moment with me when he left. I was like 10 years old in in the late 70s. He left to go to college in San Francisco and he gave me Ramon's Rocket to Russia and the Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bullocks, and was basically listen to these. So I always had that little bit of punk punk rock in me there from early, early age. Nice, nice. And what about these days? What are you listening to now? Like, I, um, it sounds like you had a pretty good experience. I know you were away for a couple of years, but were you able to listen to anything in there and follow along? Yeah, to the band? Well, they have a, a, we're allowed to buy MP3 players um, that they sell there and we can buy songs through, well, we have a, like a computer system there that we buy songs through. And um, uh, basically like Frank Turner got me through a lot of that. Frank Turner and, and Jawbreaker Dear You record because not all songs are available there. There was about 40 Atari songs available there on the on the system there, which uh, made me quite popular, which was good. <laughs> uh, so, so I would always tell people, yeah, download download Atari songs because I'll get a, <laughs> an extra royalty check, you know. But um, but basically, I wasn't listening really to anything new, but. Those couple of years I was away, it was uh, there was a lot of Frank Turner, and that really I love Frank Turner a lot, and um, um, and like I said, Jawbreaker, Dear You, and things like that um, really got me through got me through that time. But you know, my te- my ten year olds turned me on to this uh, Olivia Rodrigo album, which I think is pretty pretty cool. I mean, I know she's she's sort of like a, a little girl teeny bopper, <laughs> but those songs are pretty pop punk and, and she, she performed two of them on Saturday night live and they were pretty good, man. So what's your I, name? I, Sorry. I, I didn't like catch that. it. I like, that. I like the one song on that of the, the faster of the two songs for sure. And what's her name again? Olivia, Olivia Rodrigo. If you haven't checked her out, I haven't, I need to all check her out. I, I used to watch Saturday night live religiously and, and especially for like the band performances, you know what I mean? But a lot, yeah. a lot over the years, it's kind of just dropped off. It's not really my thing anymore. Yeah, she, she's good. She was on a Disney show called Bizarre Vark. And um, my daughter made me watch endless uh, on <laughs> Disney Plus and all that, just endless uh, Bizarre Vark over and over again. I watched like, I think there's three seasons. And uh, Jake Paul was on that, the YouTuber. Oh, okay, he, yeah. Uh, 
she was on that show too. And uh, and then you know I heard she was on Saturday Night Live, and my daughter's like, yeah, she's got an album, and it's like pop punk songs all about this boy that broke her heart. And I was like, dang, these songs are pretty good. And she got like a skinhead drummer, and and uh, <laughs> pr- pretty co- pretty cool band actually. Yeah, it sounds like something I got to check out. You know, I, I'm always interested in that stuff. There's a there's a this group right now called Punk Rock Factory, and they're a, they're sort of YouTube famous right now. Uh, for doing all these like Disney song covers and um, 90s uh, cartoon uh, theme song covers, right? And they're really good, but they're, you can listen with your kids. You know what I mean? I don't have kids, but you know, my nephews, I showed to my nephews and they thought it was pretty cool to hear songs from the movie Frozen made into punk rock, you know? I'm going to have to check that out. What's it called? Punk Rock Factory? Punk Rock Factory. Yeah, you got it. They're, they're, they're a cool, they're from uh, the UK. Uh, They're, uh, they got a pretty cool sound and they, they, must own a, or one of them must own a recording studio because that's where they film everything. They've kind of turned it into this, this home studio for not only audio but video as well. And uh, they're just a really cool band. And and I I hope they release some originals because they're they are really talented musicians and they make these these otherwise kind of kitty ridiculous songs into these wicked like punk covers. You know. That sounds awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out with my ten year old. We we go surfing obviously the YouTube a little bit, so I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's something you can watch your kids. Now, you said you've had a 10-year-old. Are you still uh, Are you a married guy still? No, uh-uh, I'm not. I mean, um, I'm still married to her, and we're, we're great friends, but we're, we're separated. And we were together like 14 years, so a long time. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it just, it, it's, it's run its course. So, um, you know, it's uh, things like that happen. But we're still great friends. And um, since I've gotten home, uh, I've been with my 10 year old like 90 percent of the time she's been with me trying to trying to catch up for some lost time. So, yeah, absolutely. And I have a, a grown daughter from a previous previous relationship. And um, and so uh, I hang a lot with her. So I'm just kind of putting all myself into my daughters right now. Oh, I love that, man. It's good to hear. I was I was wondering about that because like it must be so hard to be away from your family. Even I know it was only a couple of years, but a couple of years must have felt like a lifetime away from them. Well, it, it was. You know, the thing is, is that I was close to home, really close to home, and so it was okay until COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, um, all visitation stopped. So it's like. It was like before, you know, when they come to visit, because I was at camp, it was like they could sit, my daughter could sit on my lap and we could play board games and all kinds of stuff like that. And and um, we could hug and kiss. And then COVID came and it all came to an end. So of the two years I was gone, like 13 months of it was COVID. So yeah. that's when it got really weird. And, and you know, it was weird for, for everyone outside in society, too. So I have to say that, you know, it, it was... It was strange to be gone during that time, for sure. Um, that made it harder because we couldn't communicate as much. But, you know, it, it is what it is. It's a new world, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did anyone bring that virus in there while you were in there? Did it? Did it oh, yeah. I, yeah. And I, believe, I believe I caught it, um, but I was never tested. I don't know for sure, but, I, I, you know, I had the chills. I had the fever the whole nine. Um, I never got a cough or a lung thing. Um, guys did get it in there for sure. And, um, um, uh, you know, I did get vaccinated in there though. Also, I'll tell people this before anyone else, um, out in the real world, uh, that's what we call it. The real, <laughs> out on the, you know, people that weren't in camp, I was vaccinated yeah. in 
I was vaccinated in January and most everyone I know wasn't vaccinated until like March, April. Yeah. So, yeah. No, for sure. It took a while before the vaccines made their way around. That's for sure. Yeah. So I, I got vaccinated early and I was one of the first people to be like, sign me up. I'm, I'm in, I want to do this. And, and so, because obviously there's a lot of, a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of politics involved in, in the vaccine. And um, I'm definitely the, first guy that's like you know i want to i want to get vaccinated so yeah me too i couldn't wait for it man like the more people get vaccinated the sooner we can get back to normal you know what i mean yeah i I, I was like i said there was we were so early in in uh it was offered to us so early that i will say there was a lot of guys that were were hesitant because it was really before the public was getting it too and so um but I, i jumped at it i was like one of the first 20 guys so yeah, no, for sure. Uh, one thing I wanted to go back to uh, earlier when you were telling me about your mom, you, did, did you say she took you to some shows? My, my stepmom took me to shows, yeah. She was, uh, she was awesome. She was younger. My dad had married a, a woman. You know, he wasn't that old anyway. My dad, my dad was like 17 when I was born. So um, my stepmom was even younger than him. So I think, you know, she was still like going to shows age when I was like, 14, 15, she was in her mid twenties. So she wanted to go see shows and she played guitar. And so she would take me and my brother. I have a brother that's a year and a half younger than me. And we, we saw bands like Slayer and Metallica, DRI in, um, at the country club, at a, at a club in, uh, in the Valley here where I live now, actually, um, that was, was, you know, like an hour and a half drive from, from where, where I grew up. And so she, she was on to it early and we, we would look up these shows and be like, okay, Slayer and DRI are playing the country club on Friday night. And so we would get tickets and we'd go to the show and she, you know, she would just kind of do her thing and let us go jump in the, in the, in the pit. So it was pretty cool. That is pretty cool to have someone like sort of like a, a young parent to be able to take you to that stuff. You know what I mean? Because I never had that. I The first experience I had for shows was just with my buddies, kind of just getting there any way we could kind of thing, you know? Yeah, it started that way. And then and then like I told I had explained earlier in the in the interview was that uh, and then by the time we were 16, we were all caravanning to these to these punk shows, you know, that were at Olympic Auditorium and the Hollywood Palladium and all these show, all these bigger shows to see, you know, uh, DRI and, and corrosion of conformity and, and suicidal tendencies and, and those big crazy shows, circle jerks and adolescents, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like amazing when you have a parent that's willing to take you to that stuff. You know what I mean? Cause like, there's no way my folks would have ever taken me there. Like they drive me there and drop me off, but they're not going to come in and yeah, see yeah. the show with me. No, she would go in, she would go into the shows. She was, she'd probably keep her distance a little bit, but she tripped out on them pretty good. So um, are you, uh, are you still a gear guy? Like, are you big into, into music gear or like what's, what's happening these days with your collection for lack of a better term? What's, what, what are you playing? I'm, uh, I'm all Fender jazz based. Like I was telling you earlier. Um, I, I, you know, that's basically what I migrated to from, from the music man, early ball, Ernie ball music man to regular Fender P basses. And then, you know, in the late nineties, I went jazz bass and I, I just, I've, I've, I have like three or four different jazz basses that I love. I have a Martin acoustic, uh, acoustic bass that I love very much for, you know, we always nice. did both bands have always done acoustic shows here and there. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, for many years I played the GK, uh, 800, uh, RB, which was like a trusty tour amp, uh, 
for um, you know going on tour. And it wasn't a tube amp, so you could beat it around and be fine. And everyone had an Ampeg 810 cabinet. Yeah, so the fridge. That was sort of my my go to for years. And then you know for a while I was sponsored by Ampeg, and then I was sponsored by GK. So I kind of go back and forth between Ampeg and GK. But I, I really like GK because because tubes are a pain in the ass to try to take on tour and, and yeah. beat them around up, you know. Yeah, for sure. Especially like those bass amps, like those Ampeg heads with all those tubes in them. Like I always thought it was kind of crazy for a bass amp to have that many tubes. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a lot to go wrong on something that just generally makes a clean tone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. And that, that's why GK is great because it's just a little solid state. It's a teeny little box and it rocks. It's, it's awesome. But in the Atari's reunion days, we, we did orange and I really fell in love with orange. And I, I mean, I yeah. love my, my orange stack was amazing and um but i think that when i go back out i'll probably go back to gk yeah just for ease of use kind of thing exactly and what or about the same thing beautiful amp sounds great you know and, and when the atari's reunion tour we, we did all that it was easy to have a tech set all that up for you do that stuff for you but when you're going out there by yourself you know like versus the world is pretty much an opening band um you're gonna want to set up your own gear and, and the gk is just you can't beat that yeah, I was just talking to Jerry from Murderland last week, you know, bass player for Murderland, and yeah. he, he was saying the same thing. Like, they, he's using uh, Neil Wayne's uh, little tiny, uh, what are they called, tiny tear or whatever they are, those little yes. orange bass things, and he said it's great, and they do have a great tone, so easy to carry around. I, the tiny tear is great, too, but I don't know. I, I, I think, I, think I, I want a little something a little more than that so but the, they, they sound great i mean no n- nothing against them at all i just think uh you know you, you can get the gk and you can take that with you and you can throw it around and it just is rugged and and it sounds fabulous yeah they're pretty amazing what about the uh recording days with the ataris like when you first recorded blue skies what what, what did you use in studio for that do you remember or was it just whatever the studio the had? bass we always plug in direct that's how we record the bass is you you go direct into the board I, I i that didn't change on any record i've ever done um you always just plug it in direct you don't use it you don't mic an amp uh for the bass so you know that's the way we recorded the bass on all those records all of the all the ataris records all of the versus the world records so i've even played with it before like well let's bring my my bass amp in and see what it sounds like and we end up scrapping it we just go direct into the board wow that's incredible to hear i, th- I thought for sure it would have been like a mic'd up rig or something like that no not not with the bass the bass tone on like uh, especially on blue skies like like you know we that, talked that, to- that, that's why i i was throwing that bass out there i have that one that we played on astoria and um all three versus records i mean it just sounds great plugged into the board yeah, I mean, if you can get that great kind of a tone, why would you bother even setting up like a rig and, you know what I mean? And we tried, trust me. We tried it. We're like, oh, maybe we can get something out. We couldn't do it. Yeah, like on, uh, you know, on San, like I told you, that San Dimas High School Football Rules, I listened to it a million times. That bass tone is huge on that. I can't even believe that you're saying you just plug straight into the board. But yeah, if it works, it direct. works. That's just direct. That's incredible. Uh, listen, man, I've had you on here for like over an hour and a half now. Um what else you want to you want to talk about? You have anything you want to bring up before we before we turn it off? No, I, th- I mean I, th- I think it's pretty good. I mean, uh, um, it's been great talking to you. It really has been, and um, you know I really appreciate the time. And uh, you know I just wanted you know to uh, um, let the world know that you know that uh, that um, I'm uh, I'm doing okay. 
How's that? Yeah, and it was nice to see that you were out. Like when I first read that you had the seven-year sentence, and then uh, you popped up on Instagram and started following my uh, my podcast page. Which again, man, like that's incredible. Thank you so much for that. That's that was amazing for me to see that. Yeah. Um, and it was I, I was very shocked because I thought. He, he can't be doing this from, you know, from prison. No, you can't. There's no, no cell phones allowed. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So like when I saw, yeah. and then I started poking around and saw that you were new to Instagram and, and, and it looked like you were out. So I thought, Jesus, this guy's out. He's doing his thing. I love it. It's, it's good to see that. Yeah, you're yeah. Well. I mean, I'm on a tight leash. There's no doubt about that. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing good and, uh, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm paying my debt to society, so to say. So you look you healthy know, too, I, let I, me I, just say. Like you said, you lost what 50 pounds yeah at least maybe 60 actually but i'm working out every day and and you know it's um and i'm sober for a long time so now uh you know almost going on three years so i I, you know i it's look you know what i always say is that our path is our path and you know you never know where that path is going to take us and i've had an incredible life if you go with the ataris and versus the world and and my business i had the record store and an electric scooter shop and um and i had the the company that ultimately got me in trouble but i you know I'm blessed to have lived this adventurous life and, you know, going to camp was part of that adventure and, and everything that I've gone through. And, uh, you know, I think that it's just, I think the ups and downs are what make a life and, you know, um, adversity is something that we all have to go through. And this is just another part of that. Yeah, definitely, man. I, I hear you on that. Like I've always said that life is about experiences, right? Good and bad. And, and they, they do definitely shape us. And, and sometimes those failures or, or those mistakes can be, some of the biggest turning points in our lives, right? So it's it's nice to see that you made the most of it and and you had a a good experience, you know, as best as it could could have been, I suppose. Um, it's it's all about it's all about your attitude and and, yeah. and how you do things. Uh, there's a lot of people that could have could have seen what what, ha- what could have taken what happened to me if it was them, and I saw it a lot. Don't you know? I've seen it a lot where they would use it as a negative and they would be angry and negative about it. That never was my attitude. Never has been. It's always this is my path, and I'm going to make the best of this, um, and uh, and I'm going to come out a better person no matter what. That's awesome, man. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, tell everybody what your Instagram actually is. Do you know it off the top uh, of your head? My Instagram is Mike uh, underscore BTW. So that's my Instagram. And you can check me out on Facebook too. So Awesome. That's great, man. Hey, don't go away. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do a quick uh, wrap up on the show here. And then I want to cool. say a proper goodbye to you like I do with all the guests. So, so don't, don't run away just yet, okay? I won't. I'm right here. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the I Got Asked podcast. Uh, it was a great having Mike around. And uh, if you guys like what you heard, please uh, go ahead and follow that podcast uh, wherever you listen. I'm not going to tell you where to listen because you're, you're doing it right now. So you obviously have found the podcast. But, but uh, subscribe there. Uh, rate me if you can. Uh, and just uh, follow me on Instagram as well. And uh, you can also follow my personal, pa- my personal Instagram page, which is Surly, O-L underscore S-U-R-L-Y. And uh, I post a lot of podcast stuff there as well. So, yeah. Um, We'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you.